Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Tax season opened on time this year with the IRS accepting returns beginning January 24th. IRS Commissioner Chuck Reddick says that IRS employees are working hard to deliver a successful 2022 tax season while facing enormous challenges related to the pandemic. And those challenges are immediately obvious to many of us in the profession. To talk about those and updates, I've invited Amber Gray Finner to the show. Amber is an enrolled agent and owner of Tax Therapy LLC in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Amber, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Kelly. Happy to be here. So let's talk challenges first, and we'll kind of talk updates toward the end a little bit. We've been joking about this on tax Twitter for a while. Like everybody keeps saying like the tax season never ended (laughs) from uh, the beginning of 2020. But other than just like pure exhaustion and IRS backlog, which I think are two things that everybody's sort of talked about and understands. What do you think are some of the challenges that people might be facing this year, either in terms of areas of tax that they might struggle with or filing challenges or or any of those bits? Like, what do you think people are concerned about as uh, tax season rolls on? Well, one thing I'm seeing anecdotal evidence for, and then the IRS has backed up a fraction of this officially, is that the letters that taxpayers are receiving, letter 6419 about the advanced child tax credit payments. And I think you experienced this. Yes. <laughs> They're inaccurate. Yes. The IRS has has admitted that some letters were printed and mailed in December, and the December payments for those taxpayers then came back to the IRS. So they've acknowledged that discrepancy. They've also acknowledged that they understand that where a taxpayer received advanced child tax credit payments for a child that they didn't claim that with alternating custody years, that mm-hmm. sort of thing, they understand that's an issue. Now, for the first part of that, they're recommending getting an online account using their verification process and double checking your transcripts to make sure that the amount matches the amount on the letter and reports I'm hearing say use the transcript amount rather than the letter amount. But again, anecdotal information is saying that there are errors in those letters yes. well beyond that. And I think yours was one of those cases. So we've had, a, as you can imagine, received a lot of emails about this. I've seen a lot of dashboards. I've seen copies of letters. Our letter was wrong. My husband actually did return some of the payments, and I expected that to be wrong just because I know the mail's slow. I know IRS might not have processed that. It was still wrong, like even notwithstanding that. They said we received much more than we did. I actually opted out of the program online, did not receive the first two, and then one day a weird amount just showed up in my bank account, which is particularly odd because I neither pay nor get refunds through that bank account. And my, my amount didn't match the dashboard either. I have had people send me screenshots of zeros in the dashboard. It will have a date, like, you know, July 13 or something. And then right next to it, it'll just say zero as being. So I know that 
I am not suggesting that every taxpayer has this problem, but I am suggesting that it's not two people talking about it on Twitter, which is kind of the way that the IRS was sort of like, yeah, there's going to be a couple people. Like I have heard from a number of sources that there have been real problems. What I'm finding a little frustrating with the IRS take on this is one, they're not acknowledging the problems, the unknown unknowns. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is they say it's a small fraction of taxpayers who are affected without acknowledging that even if it's 5% of the people receiving these payments, that's a huge, million. huge mm-hmm. raw number. It's millions of people. And again, for those that can go online and access their transcripts, double check their amounts and electronically file an accurate return, great. But what about people in your situation where there's no way to really tie that number out or figure out exactly what happened? If you guess or make your you know your best guess and file electronically, your return is most likely going to end up in a pile just like the incorrect uh, recovery rebate credits from tax year 2020 in a pile for manual review that is already millions of tax returns high. Right. And that is my concern also, since you mentioned, you know, the folks who might not be able to go online, but also you and I were talking before the program started, you know, I have a, I'm a tax attorney and I have a CPA who does my taxes. And my husband and I have taken the position that when tax season rolls around for us, because we haven't uh, started getting our stuff together yet, but when, when it does, <laughs> we either. will talk. We will talk to our CPA and give him our info, and then hopefully he can sort it out for us. Or by then, maybe there'll be some guidance from IRS, so he'll know what to do. Or maybe there's something he'll annotate on the return. What about all the people who genuinely need their refunds, as you've mentioned? Who you know, if they're wrong if they don't know how to resolve it, if they don't go to a professional who knows how to solve it, then they end up in that pile. If I weren't getting a refund, which I never get a refund, but let's assume that I was supposed to be getting a couple hundred bucks back and that got delayed, that isn't gonna stop me from paying my mortgage this month because I'm very fortunate to be in a position where that's not the case. But for some people, their refund check, as Koskinen was very fond of saying, will be the single largest check that they will receive all year. And if that's delayed, you know, how does that impact their lives? And that's something that bothers me when the IRS is dismissive, because yes, I appreciate that this is not life altering for everybody. But as you pointed out, let's assume it's 5%. That's 8 million taxpayers. Let's assume 10% of those people need that check to survive. That's still almost a million people, right? It's 800,000 people. So it's just, I feel like to be flip about the fact that this program, which I appreciate they did not dream up. I appreciate that it was Congress and that, you know, sure. It is concerning for me that we've decided that, you know, mistakes happen. I think that's one of the most frustrating bits for me at this point with IRS is that we've taken this position that as each year becomes more challenging, I think that, oh, well, mistakes happen. Like it's just something that we've decided that we should deal with in this very just wait and see kind of way. And I think in the beginning, you can tell people to be patient. I don't know how many how many people you can tell to be patient all of the time. I think it's really unfortunate. I was listening to a story on the radio this morning about someone who didn't get her, her advanced child tax credit payments because her baby was new. And she's like, well, I can get them when I file my my tax return. I'll get the refund. But in the meantime, you know, the advance payments have stopped and I could really use the money to help me buy food or pay my rent. 
Mm-hmm. And that is a large number of taxpayers. And, and I I agree with you. And I'm not sure why part of the tax prep industry, the part that promotes the refund side, I, right. I'm a small practitioner, so I'm not all about, my clients aren't all about filing early, getting their refunds, what to do with their refunds. But But there's a segment of our industry that's really all about marketing the ability to get your refund. And I'm really not sure why they're not pushing on Congress and the IRS because it's hitting their base big. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, we, we talked about on the show a bit back about EITC as well. Like some of the problems that are related to some of these other things mean that folks aren't going to get their EITC pushing those refunds back either. And I would think that that would be something that there's a segment of the the tax prep population that would be all over. And you know, and you and I both know that what happens in these situations is that there's always going to be somebody else to swoop in, right? So IRS, I appreciate that they have to be measured. I like I get it. I know they're under-resourced. I'm not, you know, today's show isn't about bashing the IRS. Um, but that said, it does make me worry for people because if they can't get their money that they're expecting in the same way that they're expecting at the same time they're expecting. They will go out and they will be victims of predatory lenders or unscrupulous preparers or ghost preparers, like somebody else who will say, I will get you your money. If the answer is just wait and see, and we've seen, you know, last year, there were people who were saying that they waited over a year to get a refund and IRS acknowledged that. There are people who are in in situations sometimes where they will take, and not, not because those people are necessarily looking to game the system, but because they're being taken advantage of. Um, by somebody who recognizes that there's a problem. That's what worries me. Absolutely. With respect to the IRS and kind of how long do we wait? And yes, obviously they are underfunded. I think there's a little bit going on. You know, there was a piece of IRS funding and I think it was $80 billion in the Build Back Better that's now been tabled and is being broken apart. And we're not sure what that's happening. But I'm not sure that the message is really getting out there that that is for enforcement not necessarily the automatic notice type enforcement that often affects lower income taxpayers. It's going for wealthier taxpayers, you know, more resources to chase after not the low hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. And while that has really good optics, I think that the service is losing sight of the fact that poor customer service is going to eventually start having a really big effect on voluntary compliance. Agree. And that is the bedrock of our tax system is people voluntarily file these returns and they expect a certain result. And if they have a question or if something is wrong, it's in the taxpayer bill of rights. They are allowed, one of their rights is the right to an answer in a timely fashion. Mm -hmm. And those rights are being just violated with impunity for the last three years, and they weren't great before that. And I think that by losing sight of the custo- the effect of customer service on taxpayer compliance, and by Congress not specifically funding more service-related issues at the IRS, it's going to have long-term consequences, and they're not going to be good. Oh, I agree with you. I, you know, this is something, we talked a little bit about this on the program before when we were talking about criminality specifically, but you know, part of the the reason that the IRS goes after celebrities or, you know, these big cases that you and I write about, because for my listeners who don't know, Amber also writes, uh, she writes for Forbes. 
One of the reasons that we see these big profile cases is because the IRS wants to say, like, we'll go after everybody, right? Like that's supposed to be. And it's supposed to make you think that the system is in place to make sure everything's fair. So I'm going to pay my fair share voluntarily. I'm going to expect that a billionaire will do the same. And so what happens is if you see people getting their checks or people getting PPP relief or people getting other things and it's not happening for you, I agree that there becomes a moment you're like, why am I playing the game the right way if my result is different from what I perceive other people to be doing and getting a different result, a better result. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that that's problematic. It's the same people that I, I get that ask me, well, I'm going to lie on my original return to get a bigger refund and I'll just amend it later because I don't want to wait. And that's the, it's the same thing. It's, you know, it goes on constantly. And I think that the more people wait and the more people get frustrated, the more people can't get through to IRS, the more that there is a, a lack of trust in the system and a real risk that voluntary compliance becomes something that isn't as, uh, the numbers we see right now are pretty good. I don't know that we continue those. Let's face it. Everybody loves to hate the IRS. Mm -hmm. The more that taxpayers can't get basic level service, you know, it's not going to improve. And you you had mentioned something on social media and, and I had violently agreed that, especially with respect to math errors and things like this, these are computers. They're designed to do arithmetic. And yes. That's not a new function of a computer. Arithmetic and reporting is something that a computer system should be good at. So when we're getting these, you know, small percentage, but millions arithmetic mistakes that can't be attributed to, you know, some arcane provision of tax law or interrelated parts, just the calculation was wrong, or we can't tell you how that number came to be, that really undermines faith in the system. And it just feeds into these conspiracy theories. You know, there's this grain of truth to it that the computers aren't doing what they need to be doing. But you take that grain of truth and, and you know, wrap it into this big pearl of conspiracy yeah. that, you know, so, something's up with the IRS and they're, they're out to do this or that. And it gives it a legitimacy that it really doesn't have, but it just makes it so much harder for the service, for tax professionals, and for taxpayers to, to do what they need to do. So walking IRS out of that last equation that you just, just said, what can tax professionals and taxpayers do this season to make their lives easier? Understanding that, as we just mentioned, there's going to be challenges like, you know, you're going to have to wait. There's going to be problems with the checks, but what can they do to to have a better season? Because, you know, as we've mentioned, not everybody's in this ACTC boat. There are some folks that aren't having the same problems. How do we make sure that those people continue not to have problems? So the big thing is, especially for professionals, slow down. I think that professionals that have high volume practices that are kind of focused on getting people in and out the door are going to have it more difficult than practitioners whose practices are a little smaller or more um, year, year round mm -hmm. kind of value added practices. But you really need to take a pause if you need to make sure that you have all of the information. And then unfortunately, if, you're, if your client does have one of those ACTC letter, letters, you're going to want to have them verify it or you're going to want to verify it. Man, that just slows 
everybody down. It's it's a huge slog and getting the um this touches on another item that I had written up for Forbes that there's this huge bottleneck processing the authorization forms necessary for tax professionals to access their clients' information. Right. And right now it's running at about four weeks. That creates the problem both in filing season and with these notices, because a lot of the notices are saying you have 30 days to respond. And even if the the client gets the notice to you promptly, you can't get your authorization processed. And then your only other option is to call and fax it to the rep, but that comes with its own logistical problems in that, you know, hold times, courtesy disconnect. I mean, it's just this cascading series of failures. So accuracy, file electronically. And again, you know, we're in a pandemic and unfortunately a lot of people have passed away. You cannot file refund for a deceased taxpayer form 1310 electronically. The Social Security Administration for identity theft reasons has locked, being very Johnny on the spot about locking out social security numbers. So taxpayers can't file electronically and you're getting these messages, you know, file electronically, file electronically. There's a huge amount of forms that can't be filed electronically. If you can, file electronically. Go slow. Make sure that your tax professional, that you wait and make sure that you have all of your information and provide it to your tax professional. Or if you're filing using your own free file or uh, do-it-yourself software, really, really make sure that you the information you have is complete and correct. Can we back up a minute? Because one of the things that you've said twice now about going slow and being patient, I, I love, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of this. I tell people all the time, like I'd rather, I'd rather be on extension or, you know, filing later with the correct return than a flawed rushed return. So I completely agree with you, but there's mixed messaging right now on this because, and it's coming from the service, some of it. Oh yes. Some of it's coming from the industry in fairness. But this idea that you should go really quickly because ID theft, what if somebody steals your stuff, right? So like you need to file and you need to file now and you need to do it like absolutely this second so that nobody else takes your refund. Like how do we talk to taxpayers about, you know, this balance? Because because I agree that, you know, for some taxpayers, there is there may be an advantage to filing early, but this rush to file is contrary to what the real realities are right now. One of the options I'm recommending, and I'm really happy the service has opened it up to everyone at this point, is requesting an identity protection pin. Mm -hmm. Because it used to be you had to file a form 14039, and you may still have to do that to get this identity protection pin. And it's a little late for this filing season, but it's definitely something that taxpayers should be aware of. Can you tell people what it is for folks who don't know? Sure. Like it says, it's a PIN, five digits, and the IRS actually mails it to you. So if you move frequently, that can be a problem, but you can retrieve it online. I had a client who had to actually retrieve his um, college-age daughter's IP PIN online so I could get their return filed this year. But basically, it prevents electronic filing unless that number is included on the electronically submitted return. So for my client, we had forgotten that that his emerging adult daughter had had this IP pin. I filed his return. It bounced. And I said, hey, your daughter has an IP pin. And he's like, oh, she couldn't find it. (laughs) (laughs) Took him a while, but he went through the services process and he got it. And we got his, his electronic return filed. 
But the presence of that identity protection pin will prevent someone from filing before you've had a chance to file because they don't have it. So if, if an identity thief has all of your other information, tries to file a return electronically, it's going to bounce. It's going to get rejected because the identity protection pin is not there. So that's one of the best tools. That's great advice. Being I, able I to kind of slow the roll here. Yeah, no, that's great. I think the funny thing is for all that we complain about some of the options that are available for taxpayers, there are simple things that people can do to make their lives a little easier. Electronic filing, I, I agree with because I have clients that had to paper file for one reason or another, and you know they're still waiting two years later. Um, and the IRS, again, has acknowledged there's a backup. And as you've mentioned, there are, are some folks who do not have another option. There is something that you might have to do on paper. It's The IRS is still pretty paper heavy. And then also IPENs, IP pens. Is there anything else that you can think of that would make a taxpayer's life easier during filing season? I think the online services, notwithstanding the controversy around IDMe, I think the access to online records is great because I think that especially those of us who freelance, every now and again, you'll, you'll miss a small 1099. And this is a good check. So you can actually go online and check those things. I'm encouraging my clients to sign up for IRS online accounts. The ID me process, there are some philosophical objections to it that are that are well reasoned and mm-hmm. there are the process itself can be cumbersome. Again, a small percentage but fairly high number of people are experiencing problems with actually um, doing the automatic verification because of either their photo ID, the system's having trouble with it or their phone, you know, the selfie part they're having an issue with. And mm-hmm. so if you have to go to live verification, it takes a while to get through, but everybody, I know that once they get through to a live agent, the process itself is really straightforward. And for taxpayers to be able to access their information, yeah, you won't forget that bank 1099 mm-hmm. or, or you won't forget that one W2. How many times do we have young people that maybe have a lot of jobs? It's like, oh, here's this other W2 that just came in the mail. I forgot I'd worked there for a month. Right. So, you know, having access to that information is helpful. It's also going to help those of you who have tax practitioners because, again, those bottlenecks with us trying to get the authorization form so we can pull your information for you, it's really, really difficult right now Mm -hmm. for everyone. On the taxpayer side, trying to stay organized, I know is always a big deal since you mentioned the the W-2, the 1099. Do you have any uh, tricks of the trade or tips for folks? Because I know that I haven't prepared returns in years for, you know, for, for um, compensation, but back in the day, you know, I had people bring suitcases full of stuff and shoeboxes full and, you know, and I, I appreciate that everybody has a different style. I have three kids and they all came out wired differently. Like I get that, but do you like, is there something that you see from year to year that you would consider problematic that you're like, if only people would do this this way in 2022, I think their lives would be easier. Oh, you know, I have the usual, you know, no staples, open your envelopes. <laughs> uh, learning what... I'm going to confess right now, I don't open my tax forms. I don't. I like we got ours the other day from the student loan people and I have a very complicated relationship with them at the best of times. And so when the, my 1098s come for the interest that I paid, I keep them in a stack. They go straight to the CPA. Like there's certain things and I know better. And so I, I get it why people don't because sometimes you just don't want to see it. To be fair, if I know it's a 1099, I open it because I want to check the amount myself to make sure it's right before I hand it over. But loan interest, 
if they say I paid 6,000, I don't know if that's right or not. Right. So I don't even bother. So I'll just be one of those people to confess that straight up. And honestly, just keeping your tax stuff together and not putting stuff that's not tax related in it. A lot of tax professionals, me included, use automated systems. So following along with your tax professional's automated system Mm -hmm. and providing the information when it's requested and how it's requested is a help. If you understand the difference between which are income documents, uh, 1099 interest, W-2s, 1099 social security, 1099 R's for retirement versus expense documents, your 1098-Ts from the educational institutions and your 1098-INTs from your mortgage interest, even keep those in separate piles. That's all good. Those 1099 broker statements, we get a lot of tax professionals and taxpayers, they don't always include all the pages. I know it, some of them can be pretty thick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unless it specifically says this page intentionally let bl- left blank. <laughs> Right. There's information buried in some of those pages that your tax professional needs and and having to kind of go after the fact and follow that up. And then if you're looking at it and you're like, I don't know what they could possibly need, it might be time to hire a professional. (laughs) I'm going to be super, I'm not even kidding. I'm going to be super controversial for a second. So on the tax preparer side, you and I have talked about this on Twitter. Other people have. Tax professionals like to do things the way they like to do them. Everybody does. I mean, I, I, you know, I get it. Everybody has a different way of doing things. I think sometimes the rigidity can be really stressful for taxpayers. I think it's one of the reasons why taxpayers don't hire professionals. I, I know this in my own practice on the compliance side and the controversy side. Like they're fearful of being judged. They're fearful of being mocked. They're fearful of wasting someone's time and including their own, but also professionals. How can we in the profession, so it's a two-part question, how can we in the profession be better about setting expectations so that somebody knows ahead of time if it's a good fit or not? Because you don't want it to be April and realizing that for both of you, this was a terrible mistake. So how can professionals be better about this? And, and how can taxpayers understand what their obligations are? Especially, you know, you know, we're in the a pandemic still. People aren't necessarily meeting face-to-face. Even folks who were used to seeing their professionals face-to-face aren't seeing them. I was talking to, to Donald, you know, Donald Nelson about doing things electronically, and he's a big fan. And he talked about the challenges of like trying to mesh keeping services and, and being personal and giving attention and making people understand that the efficiencies that are created with uploading or using a system allow him to do a better job. But how do we communicate that better as professionals? And then what should taxpayers know about that? Because as you're talking, I I will say I I do get reader mail where they're scared to go find somebody because they're kind of worried about, you know, this idea that people are mean or that they will feel stupid because they don't know, they don't know the difference between a 1099 and a 1098. So I'm going to tell you right now, if your tax practitioner is making you feel stupid, find someone else. I agree with you, but you and I both know that that is not what everybody thinks. It's getting more difficult, but no one's born knowing this stuff, tax practitioners included. Mm -hmm. And you should be comfortable. You are trusting that professional with your most sensitive, your entire financial identity. And so if you don't feel comfortable with that person, they're talking down to you, they're moving too fast. It's a little more work for you on the front end, you know, to find someone that you're comfortable with that can meet your price point. But those people are out there. I am going to pop in and say, 
they don't have to have the CPA letters behind their name. They don't right. even have to have the EA letters behind their name. Those can sometimes help, but they're not a guarantee. There are many, many good tax practitioners out there who can meet your needs in a way that, that you're comfortable with. And, and tax practitioners exist all across the spectrum. So, so if you're a taxpayer looking for a practitioner, I know you've written about this. I've written about this. There are tons of tips online out there about what to look for, what the various designations mean. Take the time to investigate those. And I will always say that price is should be a factor, not the factor. I see yes. a lot of practitioners saying, well, if the first question out of their mouth is about price, they're not a good fit for me. And it's like, well, I understand that people are price conscious and I'm okay if the first question out of their mouth is about price. But it's not even necessarily that they're price conscious. I think there are people who just genuinely, I can't tell you how many times I get emails that say, and I've been asked many times in person, is $500 a good price? Is $1,000 a good price? Like they don't even know. So it's not, I don't think anybody who asks how much this is going to cost is always shopping on price. I think right. sometimes they just want to make sure like that you're not going to say $10,000 after they've spent an hour talking to you. You know, they want to, I mean, sorry, before they spend, you know, you want to know up front. We're walking a really fine line. You know, as an enrolled agent, we're not supposed to discuss prices openly amongst ourselves because that could be seen as collusion. Same for attorneys. Yeah. And as a Circular 230 practitioners, once you post a price publicly, you're bound to it for 30 or 90 days. I can't remember which, but it's in Circular 230. Right. Everything's in Circular 230. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes clients don't, you get the whole, my tax return is really simple. And then once you get into it, it gets a lot more complex. Right. So I think that practitioners and taxpayers, you know, need to be a little more open about this is my base price. These are the things that add to your fee. You know, I'm very transparent about kind of what adds to to the price of a return and why my base price is what it is and why I'm more expensive than do-it-yourself software. The answers to those kinds of things are there on my website and, and they may be, you know, your local tax professional's website. Mm -hmm. And they are very important. And you're right. Not everybody is price shopping. They're just trying to get an idea. That's tough. And on the practitioner side, I think we can do a better job of two things. If you are one of those rigid, efficiency-oriented, process-oriented practices, you need to really communicate that and early and often and as widely as possible and maybe in a gentle way. So if you are an exclusively virtual firm, make sure that's known. One of my colleagues, it's right in her tagline on her website, a virtual tax firm. And mm -hmm. I kind of stole that from her and mine now says a mostly virtual tax <laughs> firm. Right. So you communicate that. And I use automatic calendaring feature for booking a client discovery call. The inability or unwillingness to book the discovery call for new clients sometimes gives me an idea of will the client be able to keep up with my processes. Now, that said, as a practitioner, it's your practice. You can run it the way you want to, but there's something to be said for meeting clients where they are. Mm -hmm. I know you follow um, Jason Stats on Twitter and he's the big automation guy, mm -hmm. but <laughs> I'm going to toot my own horn a little here. One of his most popular posts from 2021 were my fillable PDFs because they meet clients where they are. A lot of folks use internet form builder or something like that where the client goes through a series of questions. 
I find those tedious and I'm a pretty fast reader. Mm -hmm. I like these fillable PDFs because for there are security reasons I like them. I like them because they're easily scannable. Clients can print and write because I do still take paper documents in addition to uploads, or they can type right into the PDFs. And so for me, that's besides being part of my security issues, we'll say, mm -hmm. I lean towards the more paranoid side of the spectrum when it comes to office security. It meets clients where they are. And if you can't do that, if that's just not how you roll, if that's not how you want run your practice and not how you want your practice to be in the future, that's fine. Just really get that out there and find a way to communicate that to potential clients that doesn't make them feel less than. Right. I think that's great advice kind of to summarize this whole discussion. I think IRS could do a better job of communicating. I think taxpayers need to communicate what it is that they need. And I think tax practitioners need to communicate what is what it is that they offer. And then everybody can figure out, I mean, IRS, again, we're going to take them out of the equation for the last part, but they can figure out, is this a good fit? And Or maybe it's not a perfect fit, but like, what do I need to make it a better fit? As a taxpayer, like, okay, I get it. You want me to separate some things. Like, talk to me like I'm a five-year-old. Tell me what you want me to do and I'll do no it. No staples. Yeah. <laughs> no staples. <laughs> yeah, it's like the Christina Crawford. Isn't that her name from... Um, but the mother and the wire hangers. Why did that oh, pop out of my head? Joan, Joan Crawford. Crawford. Yeah, her daughter was. Yeah, that. no right. wire hangers. Yeah, no that's what I thought of when you're like, no staples. Oh my gosh, that would be a hilarious meme. Well, it's not really hilarious because that was a sad situation. Yes, but, it was. <laughs> but but it's it's definitely kind of a meme thing. Is is no staples? Communication is so important, and, and taxpayers. I don't think taxpayers, and it's not their fault, they don't live this the way we do. They don't really understand all the time. You know, we get the, I know you're busy, but. Yeah. And it's like, you really don't have an idea unless maybe you're, you're you know, a nurse or a doctor, mm -hmm. kind of what tax season is like for, for a tax professional, especially over the last couple of years. Right. It's never ending. And, and practitioners, again, even if this person isn't your type of a client, please don't make them feel less than because taxes aren't getting any easier. Tax returns that used to be simple aren't anymore. And it's just so important that taxpayers not feel intimidated by the process itself. We speak Agreed. a different language when we're in work mode, and that can be very alienating for taxpayers. Remember, there's their human beings on the other side of the equation and we're stressed out, but we still need to try to be kind. I love that. And that's the note that we're going to end on because I think kindness is always something to take away. But I am going to ask you my quick fire getting to know you <laughs> questions. Ah. So first one is what's the most important thing you learned in school? If you know what you want to say, you just don't know how to say it. You really don't know what you want to say. That was my high school English teacher's thing. And she's the one I credit for teaching me how to write. Joan Cattulli, Las Vegas High School. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. What's your favorite tax code section or reg? 61. I love 61. Gross income. It's all income unless it isn't. Nice. I know that's, again, whole basis for our tax system right there. Controversial one. Should the tax filing season deadline be changed? And if so, to what date? See, the listeners don't know, but I can see you rolling your eyes. I know you do. I know you don't want to answer this one, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Well, no, I, I think that I would like to see some sort of permanent shift, recognizing that it's just a lot, there are a lot more people filing returns and it's a lot more difficult to file returns these days. 
So I would love to see some sort of systemic shift that spreads the deadline out. Now, there's many different options for managing that. As far as do we do some sort of extension this season or some sort of disaster by disaster piecemeal extension to the season, I kind of hope not. Yeah, I think most people hope not for this season. And then finally, Tax Twitter wants to know pancakes or waffles? Oh, team waffle. Team waffle every day. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. If folks wanted to find you either on social media or online and you wanted to be found, where would you send them? I am mainly findable on Twitter as TaxTherapist505. And my website is TaxTherapy505.com. There's actually quite a bit of help and information for taxpayers and even tax professionals. If I put it up there, it is shareable, borrowable, whatever. Awesome. And I'll put those things in the show notes so that people can find them, those links. Thank you again so much for being on the show. This was fun. Thanks, Kelly. Yes, it was. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be. The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be 1 million about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Girl Podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues. You can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.